Greetings, everyone. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. The podcast is the Medical Liability Minute. And as our listeners are well aware, we will be speaking for more than a minute. And today, we're fortunate to have Teddy Gillen uh, speaking with us. So who is he? He's an insurance broker and healthcare consultant. I know everybody's saying, oh, insurance is boring. I don't want to talk about it. Let me tell you something. You, this is going to be a whirlwind version of the changing landscape, why you must and need to know about professional liability coverage today, as well as the other types of coverage that many people do not have. And they call us up um, after a crisis is hit and go, what do I do now? So my, my answer to that is going to be, at least today, listen to the advice, get on board, at least learn about this stuff before there's a crisis. And you will have your um, your life preserver before um, the the waves start uh, getting rough. Anyway, without further ado, let me welcome Teddy Gillen. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So the first thing I want to do is tell us about your background. Who are you? What do you do? Introduce yourself to the audience here. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, well. Uh, my name is Teddy Gillen. Our firm, as you mentioned, we we focus on the physician medical malpractice space. Uh, we work with the solo practitioner up to a large healthcare system. We work with groups all around the country, and we have carrier partners that work with groups um, all around the country as well. Uh, my background is I'm a I went to University of Georgia, uh, the Bulldogs, and um, majored in risk management and insurance. And at the time, we were the number one program in the in the country. I don't know where we stand now, but believe it or not, uh, the Wharton School of Business um, was number two at the time. So I jumped in insurance really early and knew exactly where I wanted to go in my career. And I've been in this business now for 16 years. I love the idea that risk management is associated with the mascot, the bulldog. I think there's a connection <laughs> there somehow. Correct. There probably is. Yeah. So. So you've got a footprint all across the country, and if I heard you correctly, you work with more than one carrier, meaning that you're not beholden to a single professional liability carrier. You can figure out what is the best fit for an individual practice. Is that accurate? That is 100% accurate. Um, you know, the the malpractice landscape around the country is is very specific based on location and specialty and so often we'll see groups working directly with carriers and so if you're listening and you're in a state where the the market is is mostly direct um you know you may not even be aware but there are brokers out there that have access to uh the carrier you're going direct to most likely as well as you know seven or eight others that are standard admitted carriers that would be willing to offer quotes so what we do is we we pull together the underwriting information and uh, provide a proposal that you know fits their unique needs. So let's talk about a direct model. In the direct model, that's where the doctor would call up the carrier directly. Um, and at least in theory, they would cut out the middleman, the salesman, the broker. And I guess in their brain, the doctor is thinking, well, I guess I get a discount because there's no commission being paid. But that's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And so in a sense, you're paying retail at the individual level. Tell me or tell our audience, what is the benefit or advantage of potentially working with a broker, even if ultimately you would go to the same carrier and get it placed with the exact same company the doctor would go to directly? 
Well, that's a great question. So, you know, first, you know, the direct carriers are they they certainly offer a great product, and the salespeople that on the direct side are are excellent salespeople. The the big difference is that as a broker, we're the the client's advocate, so we work on behalf of the client. Whereas on the direct sales side, you know, they're they're going to be employed by the insurance company that they work for. And so their first allegiance is going to be to those folks. Um, and the majority of the marketplace is the admitted marketplace, which means the state insurance office has provided a stamp of a, approval uh, for that insurance company to be uh, writing malpractice insurance. And in that approval process, the carriers actually submit their rates with the state. And so they're approved by the state on the front end. And whether they deliver that product through their direct or through their broker model, the, the price is, is, is the same. And so there's, there's no uh, differentiation of, of, oh, we're going to pay more by going through the broker. Um, and oftentimes what we do is, is because we can create a, a little bit of competition between um, our markets, we can typically drive the price down lower than what you can get from a direct agent because they're just they're not out there shopping um, your insurance quotes. And so with that, you know, we work for on behalf of our clients and we're not paid unless we, um, you know, get the deal done. And so we're incentivized to get out there and um, provide the best deal for our clients year over year. Um, In a sense, having, yeah, it does. Having more than one entity bidding on the doctor's business reminds me of purchasing food or water at the airport, meaning that it's hard to shop when there's only one store selling water and they can charge whatever they want. But if there were multiple entities selling it, at least in theory, the price would go down, not dissimilar to the professional liability market. If there are multiple entities vying for a physician's business or a group's business, the price is likely to at least be more competitive. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, much has changed in the MedMal marketplace over the past decade and certainly over the past two years. I've seen the ups and downs. I mean, it looks like a roller coaster in one sense. It almost looks like the stock market. Um, Absolutely. Gone from hard to soft, hard to soft. And why don't you educate listeners as to what that means as well as what has changed over the past two years? What makes this marketplace different and what can physicians expect going forward? Well, that's a, a great question, and and you know you're, you hit the nail on the head that you know, currently the market is in a little bit of a change, and um, and we are experiencing a hard market, and so in our definition, a hard market is when you know carriers are increasing rates, they're tightening their policy conditions, um, they're looking for only clients that have had no claims. And so in general, it's, it's, it's a harder market to find great coverage at a great price. Um, but uh, previous to the last couple of years, we experienced since 2001, a soft market, which every year the, the carrier's rates were getting better. You know, competitively, they were trying to one-up each other on, on, on new terms, better terms, better policies. They were trying to buy each other's business, really gain market share. And it drove premiums down um, for a significant uh, time period. So since about 2001 until about 2017, 2018, 
we saw in an historical long soft market where it'd be a, a buyer's market, if you will, for the for the the doctor buying medical malpractice insurance. So for a doctor, that was a good deal, meaning that prices went down, prices for premiums went down. They at least had the belief that prices were stable and not going to be a significant line item in their uh, operating budget. And time, I guess the underlying feeling also was that all the carriers were equal. They were commodities and that were being bought and sold. And that um, if a doctor were ever sued, that they would get exactly what they thought they were getting, namely a defense as well as um, settlement or judgment up to policy limits. But again, all that's changed too, <laughs> correct? But keep going. Yeah, no, it's 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 changing dramatically. I mean, we've seen the last, say, three years, we've seen more than eight failures in the malpractice marketplace. And some of those with you know your typical mutual carriers and others with risk retention groups that have mm-hmm. that are in this business and then that fail and and when that happens if they're an admitted carrier in the state the state has to seize their assets and come in and and take over the claims and handle them from there um, and and really those failures are a warning sign or they 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 were a warning sign to us that the market was changing um, and so and since that time we've seen. Um, acquisitions. Um, as of last week, uh, one of the top carriers in the industry, ProAssurance, announced that they, were, they will be acquiring one of the top mutual carriers in the country, which is NorCal Group. And so that mm-hmm. announcement came uh, last week, and that's that's a big splash in the industry. Um, two of the largest or the top 10 carriers consolidating. Um, and we've seen that, we've seen downgrades, and then we've seen some other, you know, state-specific mutual companies, you know, exiting and selling to some of the larger um, organizations just because they're seeing the trends and the long-term trends are showing that, you know, they just can't keep up with the claims that they're having. I mean, this is disruptive. I, I remember around 2000, one of the larger carriers in the country, I believe they had just shy of 10% of market share, said, you know what? We don't know how to make money in professional liability. We're done. We're out. And That's um, right. and they were they were they were a profitable company, but they didn't know how to make money in the professional liability business. So when they exited, it was extremely disruptive. It meant there were fewer uh, players that were left, uh, even though 90% of the market was intact. But uh, it was it was viewed as a very disruptive event, and I think that's when prices started to spike. Um, and it wasn't just a question of affordability. It was a question of availability. There were doctors who could not find coverage, even if they tried and were willing to pay a significant price for it. Well, you're absolutely right. So back in that 2000, 2001 timeframe, uh, insurance carriers had about, in this industry, they had over 150% combined loss ratio. And so the combined ratio is for every dollar that they take in in premium, how much do they pay in expenses and claims? And so if you're paying 150%, uh, you're going to have to get 50% in the marketplace to make up for your losses. And it's pretty hard to get 50% on your investment income. And so that's when major carriers exited the market. They looked at it as a line item and said, you know what, we, we cannot be in this business. And that's where we saw the, the, the surge and the, the surge of the MedMal specific carriers. And a lot of them were state specific, whether it was, mm-hmm. you know, the Medical Association of Georgia or Alabama or state, 
state ball in Tennessee and around the country, you know, there was state specific carriers that, that, that came in to save the day and they lobbied their local, you know, state uh, government to, you know, uh, implement tort reform and really drive down uh, the cost of associated with a claim. And it so worked. That of, so that was one of the benefits, meaning that you had a regional marketplace and so uh, the carriers became very well versed in some of the nuances of the marketplace, understood their uh, their clients well, the legal landscape well, um, and in parallel, they were able to get uh, through various efforts, tort reform passed in a number of those states to take the heat off of the legal process, correct? Absolutely. Um, and as you know, th things are cyclical. So, yeah. you know, while it worked at that time, what we saw is those combined ratios started to plummet, right? So if 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 there's tort reform in the state of Florida where they cap out, you know, uh, the pain and suffering um, losses in medical malpractice marketplace, then it then it makes it easier to do business in the state of Florida for carriers. And and it was like that in many other states across the country that really drove down pricing. That really uh, created this competitive atmosphere that we experienced in the soft market over the last 15 years. And as they uh, have sort of been bottoming out their pricing and improving their coverage, we hit a we hit a bottoming out point and we've seen um, tort reforms around the country getting repealed. Mm -hmm. uh, the plaintiff's attorneys are very powerful um, with the lobbyists and in, in, in their individual states of, of working to uh, repeal that tort reform. Um, and now we're seeing shock verdicts around the country. Um, you know, a shock verdict being a verdict that is well above policy limits. Um, and, and that's a real freak out for the doctor because um, on the one hand, the doctor wants to defend their name. They don't want to do a settlement or judgment ideally because it can impact their reputation, their credentialing, their licensing. They get um, they get admitted as a line item in the National Practitioner Data Bank. So there's a lot of reasons the physician would not want to go. Um, well, they 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 don't want to settle if they believe the case is defendable. The challenge is, you know, most doctors aren't willing to risk their nest egg, their house, and their future just to prove a point. And whereas historically. Um, it would not be um, it, it would not be crazy. Well, it would be crazy to see judgments that were above policy limits. So I meant the insurance policy covered everything, and the doctor could actually um, play poker. They could actually take the risk. But today, the jury verdicts in many locations, because of the um, the erosion of tort reform as well as other reasons it is possible to get a verdict on the order of $5 million, $10 million, $20 million. And if you're it, if you're the only doctor on the hook and your policy is just a million dollars, that's not a good day for you, is it? Uh, no, not at all. And, um, you know, every situation is unique. Uh, that's where you'd want to be with a carrier that is a MedMal specific carrier. You mm -hmm. know, you want to have terms, which we can talk about now or later in the in the show just the the terms of your contract what are they you know what you, what should you be looking for and um those terms are going to dictate how that process goes and the claims process 
Um, and so oftentimes people view medical malpractice, you know, or any of their insurance policies. Every consumer that, that purchases insurance sees a policy. Okay, this has liability on it. This is my med mal policy. But it's a, it's a lot like buying a car. I mean, you can buy a Pinto, you can buy a Ferrari and everything in between. And if you, if you don't have an advocate that's really explaining the terms, um, you know, to, and, and, and providing those explanations to you, then you may not be buying exactly what you're looking for. Let's talk about that. I think it's important. Um, it's, I guess in, in some ways it's not dissimilar to a health insurance policy or a car insurance policy. Most people don't spend a lot of, I mean, if you buy direct, you, we all know enough to be dangerous. We don't have the background training and experience to understand what our needs will be down the road. So in a sense, doctors, myself included, need an education uh, with this. The last thing you want to be doing is pulling out your policy for the first time to go over the terms and conditions after you've been sued, because the first thing you may find is, uh-oh, I'm not covered for any of this. And we've seen this before. For example, where a, um, a physician is underwritten as a uh, ER doctor, family practitioner, but on the side, they're doing Botox, for example, something mm. that would not typically be done in an ER practice. And then a patient comes in with an infection, something that would otherwise be easily defendable, but they don't have coverage. They don't have coverage because they just assume that, hey, look, you know, ER coverage is probably more expensive than plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery coverage. I can't believe it's not covered, but um, the, the time to identify these deficiencies is before there's a problem as opposed to after. Yeah, go ahead. Let's Let's go through the educational process. What is it that doctors must know going into purchasing a policy? How do you educate them? Well, I mean, first, it's only as good as the paper that it's written on. So first, mm -hmm. who are you buying your coverage with? What are their financial ratings? Um, we see um, AM Best is, is the um, premier rating basis in our industry. And you can go to their website, AM Best. Uh, I think it might be ambest.com and search for your carrier and see what their ratings are. And anything less than A minus, I would be concerned about. And so we have several carriers that are, you know, whether they're claiming to be the direct model or, you know, we're, we're, we've reinvented this process and we can do this better than, than our competitors. Well, if you, if you peel back their financial ratings, they're, they're with um, rating basis that aren't AM best that, that frankly, I, I wouldn't trust. And so the first thing you want to know is, hey, what are they, you know, who's the carrier? What are their financials? I mean, if they have fewer assets, oftentimes we see some of these carriers have fewer assets than the doctors do. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, that, and that's like scary. Say, hey, you know, you have more assets than they do. So what's, uh, what are you buying here? Yeah. So a plaintiff attorney will say, well, given the two, I'll take my ass. I'll take what, uh, the liability coverage from the doctor directly. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, when you, when you are looking at those types of coverages, you want to, you want to be with an admitted carrier has the state, you know, the state insurance office, you know, place their stamp of approval on this insurance company. And if so, you know, uh, if they were to fail, then the state comes in and picks up the claims. And even that's not perfect. Um, we've certainly seen carrier failures, high profile failures where they go into a fund, but the fund doesn't have unlimited resources. It definitely has resources no. so better than nothing. But if, for example, you thought you had a million dollars worth of coverage in terms of policy limits, it may be that the fund will only supply 
I'm pulling a number out, maybe um, 30 cents on the dollar. So um, still have coverage. You just don't have the same type of coverage you had before. And that's, that's probably not a great feeling. And I think your point is, ideally, you never even want to be in that situation. But if you are in that situation, you'd, you'd rather have some coverage than no coverage at all. Oh, 100%. And in that situation, that 30, 30 cents on the dollar was not um, not that far off. I mean, we saw one recently in Tennessee where it was it was 40 cents on the dollar. And so what that means is they just look at the entire book of business across the board. Um, you know, they they you know actuarially figure out how much they have and what they can pay, and then they just apply a percentage, not on a case by case basis, but just across the board and say, all right, well we can we can afford to pay 40 cents on the dollar on um, on any claims that we have in this in this book of business. So I hate to be Debbie Downer here, but I'm I'm aware of at least a car insurance company, uh, automobile liability uh, company that was, I believe, in New Jersey. And um, I'm pretty sure it was auto liability, but maybe it wasn't. Regardless, the carrier went under, it was in liquidation. Um, and so there was a fund, the backup fund. And I believe it was 30 cents in the dollar that they were willing to pay out. So the ultimate question for the uh, for the defendant was, are they still on the hook for the million dollars, or are they just on the hook for three hundred thousand dollars because they were the good citizens? They did everything properly. They purchased um, coverage, um, liability insurance coverage. They paid a premium. They they did everything they were supposed to do. So you would think in a perfect world that the risk would be split somehow, that everybody would take a haircut. But the way this was set up and adjudicated, at least in New Jersey, was nope, you're the entity that purchased the coverage. Sorry, um, that's that's your problem. And so the liability limits didn't change, even though you only had access to 30 cents on the dollar, you were still on the hook for the full amount. And of course, this created a horrible leverage situation. I think if you mm. translate this to professional liability, the plaintiff attorney is saying, look, doc, you're on the hook for the whole amount. You only have you know, $300,000 worth of coverage. And by the way, I'm such a nice guy. I'm just gonna take 300,000 in coverage today to settle this case and call it a day. What do you wanna do? You wanna roll the dice or you want you want to go ahead and limit the potential loss to what the backup fund is going to uh, to pay. Certainly an uncomfortable situation. Like I said, I hate to be Debbie Downer here, but mm. <laughs> at least in one state, that's how it's played out. I can't I can't say that that is what the landscape looks like all across the country, but um, it, it would not surprise me if the um, the plaintiff is not made to um, accept the risk, meaning that the carrier goes under. Um, Insurance companies is the backup for the defendant anyway. I mean, ultimately, the defendant is the one that's liable and responsible. You're exactly right. And I think, you know, part of um, anyone in this space, any physician or physician practice, part of their risk management should be to, you know, look into uh, working with financial advisors and, and protecting their assets in a way uh, where they can be protected in a situation where you know policy limits are exhausted and a judgment is is beyond those limits um and so you know that's something for them to have done on the front end because um post lawsuit you really can't change 
um, you know, the behind the scenes of your financials um, because it's that would be illegal. And so there's some front end preparation that needs to be done on um, sort of protecting your assets and how you structure your organization. And then, you know, obviously, I think what we see around the country is when someone buys coverage from a reasonable carrier and they're in the standard limit wheelhouse. So, you know, typically it's a million dollars and each state's a little different, but a million um, per occurrence and three million aggregate is pretty common. So if you're buying coverage there and, and then the situation that you mentioned happens, you know, we don't see the juries, you know, on a whole, you know, really sort of sticking it to the to the defendant, um, you know, in those cases where we really see, you know, people sticking it to them is when there was negligence and, you know, you know the carrier that was selected was sort of a fly-by-night carrier with the lowest mm -hmm. limits possible. And then that's where they say, okay, well, you didn't even intend to have a, you know, a, you know, a care for the, for the patient, mm -hmm. for your medical malpractice coverage. And so that's where we see some of those uh, more harsher uh, judgments um, come into play. I do think scenarios. I do think that thinking about protecting assets in advance of a problem is is the doctor's insurance policy against an insurance uh, carrier's failure. I think um, we so with one client that we have right now, he fully protected his assets years ago, and then the carrier that he purchased coverage from went under uh, under. So there's good news and bad news. The the, the good news is that there is a fund um, and his assets are protected. So he can actually come to the table with some powerful chess pieces. I wouldn't say he can run the board, but I think he's certainly in a better position than having no access to a backup fund uh, through the insurance uh, failure, insurance capital company's failure, and being directly exposed for all of his personal assets. The point is he's probably still going to um, have to have a challenging conversation with the plaintiff attorney. His attorney, the two attorneys will need to speak together, but it's better to have a level playing field and at least have some strategic advantage than to be entirely and totally vulnerable. But I think you made a interesting and powerful point. The time to protect your assets is not when your house is on fire. You need to do this well before there's a problem. The protection of the assets needs to be needs needs to have a legitimate business purpose its primary purpose can't be to deny uh, or a delay uh, transfer of funds to a worthy uh, creditor or plaintiff mm -hmm. um, so you know if you're if you're going to court in one week that's not the time to protect your assets I think that would be considered a fraudulent conveyance uh, on the other right. hand if you set it up well in advance um, that becomes a debating point. It becomes a powerful tool for your defense attorney to have a chat with the other side saying, look, you do know the carrier doesn't have full assets, but by the way, um, if you take this case to the bitter end, uh, you'll spend years trying to collect directly from the doctor because he's protected his assets. So I love the idea of a belt and suspended approach uh, to, to managing risk. Yeah, not only that is you need to know exactly what kind of policy you're you're purchasing. Um in the scenario you mentioned, um there's really uh, mentioned the, uh, about uh, a client that 
um, you know, had purchased coverage and then the carrier failed um, and then they were exposed for their past exposures. Well, there's there's um, two different types of coverages, that, the main two types of, of, of policy um, provisions are claims made policies and occurrence. Talk we, about we're that. Asked, we're we're yeah. asked the question all the time, honestly. And I think there's, I think in med school, uh, the, there's somewhere in textbooks that say, you know, you should buy occurrence coverage um, because that's the best. And I think, you know, sort of the mentality of, of many of the providers that first come into the business um, are saying, hey, how can I get some of that occurrence coverage? And uh, we're always hesitant just to, to, to go out and say, oh, okay, here it is. I mean, we're, we consult our clients. I mean, everything is you know, situational based on the location and their specialty and their, their individual history. Tell everyone um, what an occurrence. Yeah, tell everyone yeah. what occurrences and claims made, and what is the distinction between them. I mean, many many listeners will know, but others will not. This will be the first time they've heard it. Absolutely. So, an occurrence policy provides coverage while the policy is in effect, mm-hmm. um, even if the claim happened before the the, the term. Mm-hmm. So, if if you know the the um, you know, essentially occurrence policies are a lot like how we we purchase our auto insurance, our homeowner's insurance, and and the other various types of insurance. It's a standard type of a policy in our industry. Outside of medical malpractice, there's very few folks that have claims made policies. So an occurrence, like for example, if you have a you know, automobile, um, you know whether you've been in an accident um, yep. in your policy term. Yep. Yeah, there's no surprises. Well, the physician marketplace is a little bit different in that you could have seen patients and you don't know if they've had a bad outcome. You know, they could uncover a bad outcome, um, you know, years down the road. And then the majority of states have a statute of limitations of two years from knowing about the incident. Mm-hmm. And if it involves minors, they have two years from their 18th birthday. So that's all that's saying is that you have a, um, uh, an exposure, a past exposure that's really unknown. And so if you're purchasing an occurrence policy, let's sort of walk out, you know, year one, you have an occurrence policy, no claims, you know, you renew it, year two, no claims, year three, you renew it, um, and you you um, receive papers and you're, you're being sued for a patient that you saw in year one. Well, in the occurrence model, you go back to year one to the policy that you purchased in that year and you submit the claim. Mm-hmm. And a claims made model, every time you renew your policies, you carry forward your past exposure going back to the date that you started. And that's commonly referred to as a retroactive date. And so in the scenario you mentioned about a carrier failure, if you have an occurrence policy and year one, year two, year three, and you transition to a new carrier, you're you can be sued for the past still. And if that, if your old carrier goes out of business, then you essentially are going to be working with the, the state insolvency fund um, or potentially have no coverage at all. And on a claim, in a claims made example, if you have, if you're currently with a carrier that's, you know, shaky in terms of their financials, we can transition your exposure over to an AM best A rated carrier and they will pick up your prior acts, your prior exposure going back to your retro date. And anything, any purchase policies you purchase in the past are, are irrelevant at that point. It's the, the policy that you have in the present day 
um, that picks up all claims. So the way I often think of this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that an occurrence policy, which is typically more expensive than a claims made, occurrence policy is if if you had coverage in that occurrence policy when the medical event happened, it doesn't really matter when you get sued, when the legal event occurred, you're covered, um, even if it's years down the road. On the other hand, right. with, with a claims made policy, as the name suggests, you need to have had coverage from the time that you committed the medical act, if you will, all the way to the date of the legal claim. And that could be a very long window of time. Of course, claims made policies are less expensive than occurrence policies. Um, but um, in a sense, you need to have year after year after year coverage. And so the two policies may actually get close to in term get close to each other in terms of pricing if you amortize it over a lifetime um, but certainly um, when i was in medical school everyone said oh yeah get a current then you don't have to think about it any longer but certainly there are ways to you know get the advantages advantages of pricing with a claims made policy and use various strategies just to make sure that the risk is managed I mean, at the end of the day you don't really care so much you know, how it gets labeled. You just want to make sure that how you address your career, all risk will be covered so you can sleep at night. That's exactly right. And just to add to that point is that the majority of the MedMal specific insurance carriers don't particularly love occurrence policies. And because of that, there really aren't as many options as claims are made. So when working with a broker to look at competitive options, if you're currently with an occurrence policy, which year over year, you do spend about 5 to 20% more than a claims made, fully mature claims made policy. Um, you know, you, you really don't have as many options in the marketplace. And so just to kind of walk back on the pricing model, as you mentioned, you know, let's say the physician is spending $10,000 a year uh, as a baseline premium, and that's their occurrence every year. Mm-hmm. Well, a first-year claims-made policy, um, on day one of year one, you can't be sued for anything you've done in the past. And so actuarially, the underwriters take that into account. And so your your premium is significantly less than your fifth year in business. Mm-hmm. And so when, you, when you've been practicing for five years, you have five years going back of patients that you've seen and exposure there. And so the pricing sort of starts out at about 30% on the first year of a claims made policy. And then it matures or it, it increases in cost up until about the fifth year when they've decided, okay, well, actuarially more than five years, we, you know, we probably won't see a lot of lawsuits. So the pricing stabilizes. And so from there, you're still paying, you know, 10 to 15% less than your occurrence policy year over year. And so that's the that's the big difference in pricing. Um, the one caveat to that is on a claims made policy, if you were to, um, you know, trend, if you were to retire or to, um, you know, hang it up, um, mm-hmm. then you have to purchase a tail policy, and that's a one time policy that picks up your your um, all your prior acts and gives you a policy that does not have an ending date. So it would be a, a one time policy going back to your start date and it has a it's in perpetuity so if you're sued years down the road you have a 
a tail policy that, that, that covers you for that. So the tail policy um, in, in one sense converts a claims made policy into an occurrence policy, but you got to pay for it. There's a cost associated with it. And in a sense, it, it almost comes down to, but wait, there's more. <laughs> so yeah. 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 It does. And, the, and people can be blindsided if they, you know, haven't, if they're not working with an agent that's explained to them, um, you know, that, you know, they may have to purchase a tail, but honestly, <clears throat> excuse me, the way the market has gone during this soft market <clears throat> is the we, we, majority of physicians that we work with never actually purchase a tail. You know, if they're currently with a claims made policy and they're with company A and we provide, you know, a, a competitive offer from company B, we'll transition, you know, their prior acts to the new carrier. There's no tail uh, required. Uh, the new carrier picks up prior acts, which sometimes uh, people have heard, you know, heard the terminology nose uh, yeah. coverage. Um, it's not that term isn't used as frequently as tail um, coverage, but the nose essentially picks up the prior acts. And then um, the majority of carriers provide a free tail in the event of death, disability, or retirement. So when you are ready to retire, um, you know, typically there is no cost of insurance at that point. The carrier just says, here's your, here's your tail insurance. But part of it depends so we, upon... We haven't seen, you know, typically when we see people purchasing tail is when there's a large physician group um, that owns the policy and there it's a claims made policy and folks are coming on and off the, uh, the policy roster. And, and it's one thing to look for if you're an employed physician is, you know, am I responsible for, for tail coverage if I, if I were to leave, you know, my employer, um, and, and it's a point of negotiations to discuss when you're coming on board, um, and exiting, um, in the employer arrangement. And let me let me double down on this point. You want this in writing in your employment agreement because if, if it is silent, if the employment agreement, the contract that you sign when you get started is silent on it, different states treat it differently. I do know that in New York, there is case law that if there's no comment made related to it, it is possible that your employer will be on the hook for providing tail coverage down the road. But there are other states where the outcome is 180 degrees opposite, meaning that your employer is, if, you're, if the agreement's silent, you, the employer is not on the hook, you're on the hook. And, right. And my, I, you just never really want to rely upon judicial precedent to make your point. I mean, the truth is, even in New York, I could imagine it's still going the opposite direction for the employee. So just get it in writing. Um, I know people think that, hey, look, I'm getting hired. I don't have any negotiating power. Um, that may very well be true, but at least know what you're getting into. Don't don't imagine that silence will save the day down the road. Silence will likely not save the day, and the time to have the conversation is before there's a problem. And th there are other options. You could split the tail coverage. It's not as if, you know, it's it's a binary Either you pay for it or the employer pays for it. But I, I cannot stress this enough. That is a major sticking point, a major point that should be addressed before you sign on the dotted line. Get it taken uh, care of. A hundred percent. And so in those scenarios, what we've seen is, you know, there's a, a, a group policy. The group may be spending, 
millions of dollars on their medical malpractice insurance policy. And the individual physician is just one part of that. And so if they don't have that in writing, as you mentioned, their their cost for their $1 million, $3 million, may be about $30,000 a year. And the and typical I, tail cost um, is two times your annual premium. And so if a physician is res- you know, responsible for their own tail, they may not have had um, any responsibilities in the decision-making of who their malpractice carrier is because that's decided by their employer. And so they're coming on board. Hey, they have coverage. As you mentioned in the contract, if it's silent or if it's mentioned that they're responsible for tail, uh, you know, they could be terminated or they could term the agreement themselves and then have to uh, pay $60,000 in a one-time uh, payment due within 30 days um, to cover all their risk associated with that uh, arrangement with that employer. Just think about that for a second. Let that sit for a moment. If the Imagine if the contract basically says that should the doctor leave, um, and let's say the doctor voluntarily leaves, the magic's gone, they're, they're going across the street, they can't take work from that same employer. Imagine if there's a, a clause in the agreement that says the doctor is responsible for any risk associated with his employment or any professional acts related to the employment for the time period while he was employed. Well, that's a very vague and ambiguous statement. Now you've gone across the street and then you open up an envelope and it says, uh, we, by the way, um, as per, you know, section 4.2 in the agreement that you signed, you are responsible for the risk while you were here. And while there are no open claims, there could be down the road, we need to have tail coverage. Here's, here's your invoice for $60,000. That is a bad day. (laughs) Yeah, that'll sting. (laughs) And it does. And we do, um, you know, we try to educate our clients on the front end. Um, on, you know, we consult with them on their employment contract and we answer questions directly uh, to not only the C-suite level, but the individual physician level. If they ever have any questions about their coverage, you know, they can contact us at any time and, um, you know, we can we can explain the nuances. And um, and so you're exactly right. There's an, that's another thing on the front end that you want to know about um, and take care of and have in writing. People generally think that they need tail coverage when they retire, and some carriers will supply it based on your age and how long you've been with them, just as a courtesy, I guess, a loyalty uh, courtesy. But not infrequently, if you if you leave and go from one state to another and your carrier is not admitted in that new state, you may need to get tail coverage just to cover your your prior acts in that state. So in one sense, you're almost doubling down. You're having to eliminate the residual risk in the state that you're leaving through tail coverage. And then because you've moved to a new state, you need to kind of get started in the new state. Now, it may be that, um, well, if the carrier is only admitted in the new state, not the old state, I can't imagine you have much many alternatives other than getting tail coverage. But if the carriers admit it in both states, there may be an option if they want to keep your business to uh, potentially figure out how to still cover that risk. But that's where having a broker mm. can assist with with that dialogue. Yeah, that's a great point. If you have a broker, you know, we have carriers with national contracts, uh, or excuse me, that are in all states. And, and that's the way the majority of the of the top 
seven or eight uh, malpractice carriers are as they're if they're not in all states they're trying to be in all states mm-hmm. um and you know so if you're in if you're in ohio and you move to florida you know what do i do um, and so whoever you're negotiating your malpractice with in ohio if they're not in florida exactly as you mentioned you may have to spend that sixty thousand dollars to tail out of your coverage in nice. ohio and your exposure and then start a new policy in florida um, if we, if you're working with a broker, even if you're with a state-specific carrier, because in some states they're really dominated by one player, mm-hmm. and you know, let's say it's state state volunteer in Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, you know, they may be in some other states on a non-admitted basis, but they're primarily in Tennessee. And if you want to you know, transition and move to Texas, um, then you'll have to purchase uh, you know tail coverage for the state vol. Or work with a broker that you know has a, a carrier in Texas that is also admitted in Tennessee. They would be willing to pick up prior acts for your new exposure, and so you can move to Texas, um, start a policy with a new carrier, but that includes coverage for everything you've done in Tennessee. So just having that and, little and that'll nugget, avoid that tail. Just having that nugget of wisdom as to the new carrier in Texas. Do they can they also provide? coverage for prior acts in Tennessee would be a helpful bargaining chip or or useful at least to the doctors opposed to trying to go it alone. I mean, a lot of these facts are are pieces of information you have. I'm I'm guessing that the doctor, if they have unlimited time, can probably research some of this. Yeah, yeah. But it's still um it's still quite a challenge. I mean, I'm probably capable of um doing any number of professional things outside of my domain, but I still tend to rely upon experts who are seasoned and have been in the field <laughs> for a long time yeah. to um, to advise me on these things. Absolutely. Because also things that you read on, online or on the internet aren't always true. <laughs> that Oh, uh, well, that's... That's a given. (laughs) And uh, the last the last thing I'll um, uh, point I'll make about that is um, if you're listening and you're an administrator or the person individually responsible for purchasing malpractice coverage for your group and you're a decent sized group and let's say you're recruiting somebody from outside your uh, state. You know, that can be used as a point of negotiation. So if they have a malpractice policy in place and in Texas and you're you're one to bring them over to Florida, um, you know, if you if you have the right carrier with the right footprint, you can negotiate terms to 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 hire them and pick up their prior acts. And that be that that could be a, uh, a differentiator on whether or not you can recruit that physician or not, because if they're looking at a sixty thousand dollar tail policy. And they're not really, you know, they're not ready to to, to write that check. Uh-huh. Um, you know, having a carrier that can uh, underwrite their Texas exposure and bring them on board into Florida onto the new policy um, could be a huge win for for all parties. Uh, precisely. Now we've mostly been talking about professional liability, but there are a gazillion other types of coverages that are out there. Let me start with kind of the basic. Um, ancillary components of professional liability. You you have your own practice, but you also have several mid-levels working there. It could be nurse practitioner, or physician's assistant, and so on. Talk about whether you need to get those people line-itemed in your in your policy, or whether they're already along for the ride if they're if they're W-2 employees. 
Yeah, so you'll want to structure it in one of two ways. They'll either, uh, the mid-levels will either be named with a separate limit or they'll be uh, named um, with a shared limit um, or in some cases uh, of the sort of the lower mid-levels, like a nurse, they have automatic coverage uh, on the policy underneath either the physician or the entity, depending on how the policy is structured. And so if it's a nurse practitioner, you know, you'll want to, uh, that you employ, you want to notify your carrier, hey, I have a nurse practitioner. If, if they have their own coverage, um, that's fine. We often see that there's a, there's a program out there for nurse practitioners. And so we see them bring their own coverage. And so they would have, um, you know, uh, the, the physician would have vicarious liability coverage mm-hmm. um, for that nurse practitioner, meaning if, if the nurse practitioner is sued and the physician is named, um, along with their entity, there would be coverage there. Um, in other situations, we may just add the nurse practitioner to the policy with a separate limit, and limits do stack. And so if you have a, a provider with a million, three million, uh, a nurse practitioner with a million, three million, and an entity with a million, three million, and all those are separate limits, then if they're all named in a, in a, uh, a lawsuit, there's a potential of $3 million there for the claim. So knowing upfront whether limits are stacked or not and the language associated with that is not a trivial distinction. It's the type of thing that you definitely want to know. And even if you don't have any um, mid-level providers working for you, um, if your corporate entity is named and you are named individually, knowing whether you've got a total of 2 million or 1 million is also helpful uh, to know upfront. Well, and not only that is is some of the policy contract nuances that are important to look look into uh, are you know are defense costs outside the limits or are they inside the limits? So if you have a million dollars of coverage and the defense costs erode your limits, then when you're sued and you're looking as you know if you're looking at you know defending yourself, there's a big cost to that and if that is if that defense is draining your overall you know uh, bucket of of money that can be paid at the end of the day, then that's a that's a big negative and it puts you in a precarious position. And so you'll want a policy with defense that are outside the limits. And then the mm-hmm. second big thing is um, you know what's who has control over settling the claim. Let's so, talk about that. Yeah, let's talk oh, about yeah. that because. Um, I've seen the ups and downs, and part of this is a creature of state law. Every state treats us differently, but um, certainly um, when the market was soft, the overriding type of policy was consent to settle, meaning that the doctor had to agree uh, to settle before any money would be paid. And so if the doctor wanted to fight to the bitter end, that was one of their options. Now, carriers still had some options with things called the hammer clause, and we'll spend a couple Mm. minutes talking about that to get people to be rational and reasonable. But the doctor, when the market was soft, is in the driver's seat. Have you, have you seen that change? And describe really what is meant by consent to settle um, in deeper terms. And have you seen the, um, I guess, the landscape change as the market has hardened so that more and more the carrier is in the driver's seat? Well, in the standard marketplace, we haven't seen really a change where we see the change is that underwriting guidelines are tightening 
pricing is going up and more consumers are driven towards a non-standard marketplace. And in a non-standard marketplace, uh, those carriers do not get approved by the state insurance. Um, oftentimes they're, you know, Lloyd's of London type insurers and they could still be, you know, big AM best A++ and very financially capable of, of, of handling claims. But without the uh, submitting the paperwork to the state, it allows them to operate outside of that approval, um, which means they can put anything into a contract that they want and they can price mm -hmm. their business, um, you know, with with any, at any price that they want. And so there's no uh, real structure there. Um, but if you purchase that policy, you don't have the backing of the state guarantee fund if they were to go out of business. And so that said is we don't see the market, the standard marketplace changing the consent to settle clause. And as you mentioned, it, it essentially says, well, if a physician wants to fight a claim, they can fight, they can fight it and the carrier has to stay with them and defend it until the end. That's a positive. Yeah. I mean, oh, that's it's a, a real... big, big positive. Uh, yeah. It's a huge, huge positive. And, and so if you're, if you're with a carrier that's, you know, sort of in the non-standard marketplace, you may be attracted to the price and say, oh, okay, well, I can get a better, better premium rate over here. Well, what's in that contract? As you mentioned, if, if you don't have consent to settle, uh, then the insurance company can come in and say, okay, we can get out of this um, for a hundred thousand dollars. And so that's what we're going to do. And as you know, you don't have to be guilty to be sued. And um, no, just human, <laughs> just breathe, just have a pulse. Yeah, just have a pulse. And um, and a physician, you know, most of the ones that I work for work with are uh, fantastic doctors. And and you know, oftentimes when they go through a, the claims process, there was no liability on their part. I mean, there was a bad outcome probably not not due to the way they practice medicine. And so it becomes sort of offensive to them if a carrier came in and said, I want to settle and be done. You know, there's a there's a there's pride on the line, there's reputation on the line, um, you know, there's a career on the line because they do follow you with the data bank if you if you settle a claim. So, you know, the ones that believe in in and you know Defending it to the end, if you if you have that consent to settle, you can all the way. Um, and so that's the type of carriers that we would want to bring to our best clients. In certain situations, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a less than standard um, contract, the carrier may have the consent to settle. And then, as you mentioned, they, they may also include a hammer clause, which says, mm -hmm. hey, we'd like to settle this for 100000 We believe we can do that. And if the the doctor or the insured decides to um, take it further and defend themselves, then the carrier will only pay the amount that they believed um, that they could settle for, which would in that case would be a hundred thousand, um, and then the rest would be on you. Um, and the there's different the nuances to the hammer clause. There's other types of hammer clauses but that's that's it in a nutshell yeah so um i think they have to be able to reasonably settle for that amount i think what that does is it makes people be reasonable and rational so if it turns out you really are liable and that most people would say you are liable um, and the carrier thinks that they can truly get it settled for that amount a hundred thousand dollars and if you want to be unreasonable you're you're not you're you're gambling with your own money, not house money, meaning that the carrier will pay up to that reasonable amount, namely $100,000. But the delta, any amount over, 
if you have a hammer clause, you're gambling with your own money. So a, a bit of a risk. Well, and I, I, I tend to agree with you and disagree with you on the reasonable side. And let me give you a, a sort of a counterpoint to that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, Please. what are some of the other coverages that, you know, our, our clients should look into? And one is employment practices, liability coverage. Yeah. And that essentially is a, a pre-legal defense coverage for if and when you're sued for discrimination or, you know, wrongful termination, um, you know, and that can be from a patient or that can be from an employee. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in a scenario we had where the large multi-specialty group, um, you know, hired a, a provider and um, gave them a guarantee. And at the end of the guarantee, they moved them over to a um, you know, sort of more of an eat, eat what you kill model, which was explicitly written in the contract. Uh, well, the provider um, who is you know, a physician who is highly compensated um, uh, filed a suit and alleged mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically discrimination, um, racial discrimination, gender discrimination. Uh, their EEOC uh, claim was made. And so our um, insured who had done everything possible to help this physician be successful um, was now involved with uh, a claim where they were being sued for something that they didn't do. Um, and the first thing out of the claim, the claims adjuster looked at sort of the facts of the black and white of, okay, who is the person uh, suing and said, hey, well, well, they're not asking for much. Let's just make a settlement offer. And um, our client was appalled, uh, quite honestly. And um, if they would have had that um, hammer clause in their mm-hmm. policy, uh, which they had previously to working with us, um, then they may not have had a choice. They may have been faced with this decision and and sort of forced into a to a settlement in a scenario where they were um, where they they've ended up winning the case. So. I'm going to put a plug in there for employment practices, liability insurance. I think everyone listening to this should at least get a quote on it. You'll be pleasantly surprised. I mean, of course, the amount, the premiums are different depending upon the structure of the organization and claims history. But these are expensive cases to defend, meaning if you have to go out and hire your own attorney to defend you Mm. for claims of wrongful termination or discrimination, Uh, sexual harassment, and so on, um, you'll find that even if you win, you lose, meaning that going to court to defend yourself, you're probably looking at six figures out of pocket. Um, Not a good place. Without a doubt. Yeah, um, not a great place to be. And and since the environment has changed, it's not more employer-friendly, it's more employee-friendly, particularly with cases of sexual harassment. And the thing that I find fascinating or interesting, maybe not fascinating, is that um, in the past, um, if there needed to be a minimum number of employees to trigger some of these um, complaints, uh, sexual harassment was one or uh, disability discrimination, meaning that you needed X number of employees and for each type of claim, it's different. But in states like New York uh, right now, and I don't know that New York is the only outlier, I think there are others, Merely having a single employee is enough to trigger some of these types of um, employment practices uh, lawsuits. 
Um, so a tiny little practice with a single employee could be on the hook for sexual harassment, um, discrimination, mm-hmm. um, and so on and so forth. But having the coverage, I think, gives <laughs> gives the defendant some mm-hmm. peace of mind because now you don't have to worry about giant checks. Many of these policies have a deductible associated with them, but that deductible pales in comparison to having oh, yeah. to write a six-figure check. I mean, it is painful. Nobody wants to write any checks at all, but but having um, having most of your legal fees covered as well as um, a settlement or judgment covered, I think it certainly gives people peace of mind. And, mo- and most people aren't thinking about employment practices in terms of um, getting sued, but certainly in federal court, uh, employment litigation is likely the number one or number two lawsuit that is filed in federal mm-hmm. court. Forget about even state court. I mean, federal court, it's a common lawsuit. And I'm going to take an educated guess that those premiums are rising just because uh, the cost to defend as well as the uh, cost of settlements and judgments are also going up. Well, and you're in with most physicians that are solo practitioners, let's say, they may go 30 years of their career and never have a med med mal incident. Right. Um, and that the chances that they could have an allegation of some sort of discrimination or harassment are, are actually higher than um, the chance that they'll have a med mal claim. And, and even if you don't have an employee, the policy covers you for third parties as well. So that includes patients. It could be the mailman that comes in your office. Um, you know, anyone associated with interacting with not only you, but your employees can file a, a, a lawsuit alleging, you know, discriminatory practices. And, uh, and so it's, it covers not only the folks in your organization, but uh, that, that may sue you, but uh, those that are outside on the third party. And, and so that's and one get, of the key nuances you want to look at in that policy is if it has third party coverage. And let me give an example of that in action. So we had a client who um, had a small number of employees and uh, a patient came in. I think he was in his 60s or 70s, but was just abusive uh, to uh, to the staff. And um, he was always hitting on the staff all, you know, 24-7 sexual innuendo. And it made the employee entirely uncomfortable. And I think she told the doctor and the, so the question was, you know, should the doctor terminate the doctor-patient relationship? And I think he ultimately did, letting the patient know that this, you know, you can't tolerate the bad behavior. But by then, the damage was already done. This is an employee that was still working there. She liked the practice and still wanted to work there. But because no substantive action took place immediately, it was delayed, there was a, law, a lawsuit associated with that. And it had... And, in this particular case, the doctor hadn't done anything directly wrong. It's just that he didn't, you know, terminate the doctor-patient relationship quickly, and that became the the uh, the basis for the lawsuit. Not a good day for him. No, and then we've also seen a big uptick in claims on the DNO uh, side, which is directors and officers liability. And so, with with uh, oftentimes people think of DNO policies, and they're thinking of publicly traded organizations, but the reality is that most of these claims um, are coming in private private organizations, and if you're a physician practice that has, you know, partners, um, you know, multiple owners, investors, 
and uh, you know you have a group of individuals making decisions um, that is not inclusive of all of the of the ownership, um, then you have a major directors and officers liability exposure because what we see is 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 as uh, you know if you're an investor and you're not on the board and someone mismanages your money, you know mm -hmm. then you you're going to be upset and so you're you know you're likely to sue. And so that 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 is not a um, you know the healthcare industry is not immune to that, and so in the physician practice, um, often the ones we're working with are are raising private capital and they're trying to acquire and um, or they have uh, maybe they have a group of 30 physicians, all 30 are partners, but they have an executive committee of five that make the decisions. Um, that's you know that's the 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 need for DNO. Um, coverage is 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 great, and it's since it's optional, and and especially when when um, you know a, a physician practice is working with a direct carrier. You know, let's say you have a MedMal, you have a great relationship with your MedMal carrier. You're working direct. Oftentimes, those carriers don't offer these other products, and so they're really coming in and they're and they're diving deep on the on the MedMal, and they're asking you questions from a risk management side associated with medical malpractice and until someone brings it to your attention and says hey let's look at a holistic approach of you know your your entire practice and what your exposures are and you know provide you with a, a you know a full uh, robust proposal of here's how you can you know transfer certain risk and here's what it costs and so that's as a broker that we would come in and for most you know, practices, uh, you know, we would offer a, a directors and officers quote, employment practices liability. If there's a 401k plan, you know, or mm -hmm. some other sort of deferred comp, it might, might be a need for fiduciary liability policy. Uh, we often see that they'll have a, a management group, a separate company that maybe manages um, the, the practice itself and the, and the, and the, how the dollars flows. And sometimes they do, do that for other practices in their community. And so if that's the case, they may need an errors and emissions policy. Um, certainly the, the traditional coverages like the property and general liability, and if you have employees, you need workers' comp. <clears throat> but those are some of the other, other risks associated with a, with a physician practice. Then there's also administrative defense. Uh, if your license is at risk, as well as cyber insurance, just to round out the, uh, the list. I mean, these are things where your carrier may provide it. So your carrier, your professional liability carrier may provide coverage for medical licensing board defense or claims related to Medicare, et cetera. But typically the limits that are provided are modest. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even if they do provide them, you should at least understand whether the amount that's being provided is reasonable to cover the average claim that would come in your uh, direction. When I say average claim, meaning the legal defense cost to make right. sure that um, you can defend your license. I mean, your license is, is probably your, your largest asset. It's how you make money going forward. And if your credentials or your privileges are curtailed in any way, your ability to make a living goes away. So you have to think of, I mean, in one sense, it's almost like disability insurance. You need to make sure that you can still carry on. That's why um, uh, it comes as a real shock to many physicians when they have to hire an, a lawyer and they they see they only ha they may have no um, 
licensed defense coverage, or maybe they only have $25,000, they, they soon learn that that amount is exhausted rapidly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and most of the, again, going back to like the standard versus non-standard carriers. And so your standard carriers that are MedMal focused, admitted in the state, uh, most of those have a sublimit, as you mentioned, that could be 25,000, it could be 50. Um, they'll, most of them also include some sort of cyber coverage and generally that's about the same, so 25,000 or 50,000. And if you're, um, you know, if you're uh, responsible for patient records and you're breached, the cost of notifying the patients that you've had a breach is exorbitant. I mean, it's, it's it, 50,000 is just not going to cover just the, the cost of notifying, let alone if there's in, any actual damages as a result. And so we have, we have separate programs where we can go out and, and provide standalone policies and some of our carriers that include it as a sublimit, they offer buy-ups that are, that are really inexpensive to go from, you know, 50,000 to a million or, um, you know, a hundred thousand and a sublimit to a million dollars in coverage, um, contained within your med mal policy. Um, but those are all things to, to look at and consider, um, when you're looking at your coverage. And here's an example of a cyber problem where the records were breached. They included um, before and after pictures of uh, plastic surgery patients. Oh, yes. And and the, um, you know, those pictures are being held for ransom, basically saying you've got 24 hours or we're going to release uh, the pictures of your patients. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to be happy. And if they if they do get released, the patients are not going to be happy. So, um, you know, $25,000 of coverage is likely not going to be adequate no. to make that no. problem go away. And if the problem does get manifest, those pictures are released or details of medical records are released. Um, you're looking at an ugly public relations story, media story, as well as angry patients who will be looking to be made whole for the privacy yeah. violation. So, and I, in a similar circumstance, I mean, we're not talking about some sophisticated hackers. Um, oftentimes, it's we saw one where the before and after pictures were on the website, and someone was able to um, save the images um, to their computer. And when it saved, the file name was saved, which yeah. included the patient's name. And so it's it's pretty easy. I know that case. Say. Yeah, I know uh, that case. So, <laughs> that's uh that's not there's not that you know there's not you know you know in our in our dominated in our headlines are china and russia and other folks um that are you know sort of hacking these larger sophisticated organizations that are out there trying to get us but in reality the majority of these cases are are something that's that's really not a lot sophisticated um when you're hacked and breached I mean, one thing that's helpful, and I think this is where getting a trusted advisor is also useful, is that if you're working with third parties, such as a webmaster or a web marketing company, understanding what type of coverage they have, if they create a problem. So, for example, if you are putting up before and after pictures and your webmaster is responsible for all of that, um, in a perfect world, they would also have their own coverage if they create a faux pas, such as including mm -hmm. the... Uh, the names of the patient in the file names, even if there's a giant uh, black band over the patient's eyes and you can't otherwise see who they are. Um, yeah, so absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, um, I think the healthcare industry as a whole does not do a good job of, of checking into the, to the insurance 
policies that their uh, contractors have and the third parties that they do business with have and and really buttoning up that tight um I'd say, you know, so if you're in the construction industry and you're a general contractor and you're, you know, hiring out subs, I mean, you're checking to see if they have coverage. Um, you know, when they are coming in and, and, and doing the framing on up to the, the roof and building it out, mm-hmm. uh, you're really buttoning up that tight. And on the healthcare side, we just don't see the same attention to detail uh, for whatever reason. So as you mentioned, it's, it's extremely important to see you know, what contracts you have in place, whether that's with a hospital or with a provider and you know who's responsible for uh, coverage in the event of a loss and especially if you have a you know a third party you know doing billing and coding or a third party responsible for your your patient records you want to see what what uh, exposure you know they they are on the hook for by contract and you know if they're holding you uh, harmless or indemnifying you for those exposures uh, not only that and and potentially you know asking them to supply you with a certificate of insurance and, and adding you on there as a, as a, an additional insured or a certificate holder. Teddy, we are tight on time. I do have one other yeah. question I'd like to um, dig into if we can, before we, um, absolutely before we part ways. So we've had a number of um, physician clients, maybe not a lot, but more than I'm comfortable seeing who have gotten a notice of non-renewal from their carrier. These are people that may have been out practicing for 20 or 30 years. They've got a pretty decent track record. They may have been sued once or twice, um, and then they've been sued again, and they're in the middle of a case. And while the carrier says, okay, sure, we'll defend you to the bitter end, but but we're done with you. Um, we, we really, we think you're too risky. Um, mm. And and that notice of non-renewal comes, you know, they don't have a large window of time. So they they may already be defending a case and are kind of stressed out. And if they're shopping for new coverage, they have to say, well, I'm in the middle of a case right now. And obviously that's an awkward bargaining position to be in. What options are available for doctors who find themselves in that position? I know it's not uh, hopeless because certainly we've seen doctors get placed and for for most high-earning doctors, for example, those practicing in the surgical uh, subspecialties, you need or want hospital privileges. And most hospitals, with with rare exception, mandate that you have some type of professional liability coverage. So mm. you talk about what options are available so that it's not only doom and gloom. <clears throat> well, uh, there's several options available, and we've seen this. So first, sort of backing up, uh, depending on the state, um, there may be some legal requirements that the carrier has to go through if they're going to change pricing at all. And so if they're going to go up by more than 10% on renewal, they may have to notify you legally 40 days out um, from your renewal date. And Mm -hmm. that legal notification um, may also include a notice of cancellation. Mm -hmm. They may in fact actually provide an offer for coverage at your renewal. It may be significantly different. Um, and so that notice of a cancellation has to go out legally. Um, so if you get that the day before your renewal, then legally you can, um, you know, push back on, on that um, notice and require the carrier to renew your coverage mm-hmm. for some period of time uh, where they give you proper notice. And so working with a, with a broker uh, will help you understand that. 
Um, and when you do get those, we can transition you, um, you know, the, the, the consumer, whoever's getting the notice to a new policy and pick up the prior acts on the claims made. And really that goes back to one of the key uh, carrier um, coverage issues that you want to look out for that we didn't mention earlier is when is the carrier legally on the hook for a claim? Mm -hmm. And so in the scenario you mentioned, uh, let's say you're with a Lloyd's of London type carrier, and so I'm trying to avoid using specific carrier names, but um, let's say you're with a, you know, a, a less than standard carrier, and you know they're not on the hook for any claim um, or, or any bad outcome until a written demand is made. Mm -hmm. against you for that outcome. Um, so in your scenario, let's say you're a practicing physician, you know, you have a, a death that happens. Um, one of your patients dies and you notify your carrier. Well, the carrier will say, thanks for the notification, but legally and contractually, it's not their claim until um, you actually receive a demand of some mm -hmm. kind, some sort of written demand. And that will put the doctor in a precarious situation if they then, then decide to cancel your coverage. Because mm. in that moment, if they say, if you've not yet been sued and not yet received those papers, and then they decide to cancel your coverage, when you go to transition to a new carrier, and they're going to ask you in the application, are, how, are you aware of any incidences that could result in a, into a claim? And if the answer is yes, it's going to be very, very difficult to um, transition your past exposures to a new company. And so knowing the nuances of whether you have an incident trigger in your policy or a written demand trigger for the claims is extremely important in this scenario. If it's an incident trigger and you reported, reported that claim the carrier issuing, issuing the, the non-renewal notice is still legally on the hook for all your claims that you've submitted to them. And, and so if you, when you transition or go to a new carrier, um, you start, you, you essentially start brand new with any things, you know, any of the incidences that you don't know about. Um, Hang that, on. Now I've got a question though. So what happens if you're aware of the patient death, let's call it a high risk, meaning that you're worried that this may turn into litigation, but it's you've now been non-renewed, or let's go forward three or four months and you get a notice of non-renewal, but you have yet to receive anything in writing from the patient or their family or an attorney. Where does that sit in the, I guess, in the abyss? <laughs> Should you notify yeah. your carrier of this? Um, yeah. On one hand, I, I see <laughs> the... The problem with both sides, actually. Yeah, that's it's there. So you, it, it's a little gray. I mean, I think it depends on the um, the state and and uh, but the gray area essentially is when you are completing an application for your new carrier to to move on. They ask the question: Are you aware of of any incidences that could reasonably arise into a claim? And the answer mm -hmm. is yes or no. And so if you answer no, and there's something that's extremely obvious that you, you know, maybe right. you were aware and you, you, you submitted it um, to your, your, your previous carrier, then it's, it's going to be easy for them to get out of that claim if, if, you, if you are sued in the future, because they can go back and say, hey, you, you know, 
you answered no on your application, but you were aware that this happened. And so that's, uh, that's you know, could technically be insurance fraud, um, you know, misrepresentation on that application. But the and private so, carrier may not be on the hook unless there's a written claim from the patient, their family, or a lawyer, correct? Right. Or yeah. No. So then that. So then we've had these. We've faced these situations. And so if if you're really just kind of stuck in a it's a rock in a hard place. Hey, we know about this incident. We need to transition our coverage because they're non-renewing us. The really the only option is is purchasing tail coverage. And, and I've not seen a, a policy out there that doesn't allow you to, by contract, purchase tail for some period of time. And so whether that's one year, two years, three years, or an indefinite tail. But um, really, we've seen, you know, uh, we've seen some of these situations arise where the, we have to consult the, the physician and say, if you want to make sure that you're covered in this scenario, um, you're going to have to purchase tail from your current provider, and then we'll start over brand new. Um, with the with the you know with a new carrier, I guess you can't encourage the patient to um, send a de demand letter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, that wouldn't. Uh, you know, maybe they uh, should work with medical justice at that point. To, uh, uh, you know, see what they can be, what yeah. can be done very quickly yeah. um, in terms of resolving anything that could potentially arise into a claim. And I know you do. You, you do great work on that side of the house uh, for, for physicians that are in those scenarios. Teddy, we are running up against a clock here. I want oh, to yeah. commend you for taking what is otherwise considered a dry and dreary subject <laughs> and turning to something that to me was fascinating. And I know that oh, well, good. I'm positive everyone listening to this um, learned many things that they didn't know previously. I know I did. I've been in this space for almost 20 years. So I appreciate you joining us today. Tell people how they can get in touch with you if they want to learn more about who you are or what you do. Yes, uh, people get, can get in touch with me in various ways. You can email me at teddy.gillen, that's G-I-L-L-E-N, at epicbrokers.com. Uh, call me on my cell phone, 404-550-5561, or find me on LinkedIn, uh, Teddy Gillen with Epic Brokers. That's great. We'll include all of that contact information in the show notes. And that's great that you gave your mobile phone number. So, Teddy, thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to speaking with you again. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at one 877 med just that's 1877 med just or 6335878 our stat hotline is a service offered to all current members it's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered asap members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members only page which can be accessed by our website medicaljustice.com now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews, 
at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.